Well, good morning. It is great to see you this morning. I was just freshly blessed as we were singing that song. Excuse the voice. I could do an old man river impression right now, I think, with my voice, but I won't do that. But uh, some of you will know what I mean by that, a few of the older people amongst us. Um, but yes, so excuse my voice this morning. But I was just freshly blessed as we were singing how good it is to be loved by God. How good it is. To think that God loves you, God loves me. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? Wow. Anyway, we have a message to preach. We're finishing up this morning in uh, our study of the book of Acts. Um, I don't know when we started. Was it the end of last year, the beginning of this year? I'm not sure when, but it's been for most of this year. I trust that you've been blessed and encouraged as we've studied this book. But this week, we're going to cover two chapters, chapter 27 and chapter 28. Have you noticed that we've arrived at that time of year when the travel companies are advertising for holidays for next year? Many of these holidays are coming in our papers or screens or or over emails or, or whatever. And I particularly find the cruise adverts interesting and engaging. Offering palatial ships, you look at these ships, exotic places that they visit, sumptuous dining, some of the stuff. I mean, this is where Nick and I are in common. We're kind of really basic eaters. We're not into the the fancy stuff. But sumptuous dining, island excursions, fitness and leisure facilities, opportunities to swim in warm tropical seas. Well, this morning we're going to look at a cruise that the Apostle Paul went on from Caesarea to Rome with his friends Luke and Aristarchus. And it got me thinking to how we could advertise this cruise in a very positive way that Paul was about to go on. It would be a four-month cruise, three different ships, stopping off for the island of Malta for three months. We would travel along the coast, admiring the beauty of the coastline before setting out across the Mediterranean Sea. There will be opportunity to swim in the sea. We will even provide planks of wood as floaters if you can't swim. We will all go on a 14-day diet plan. No food. We would stay for three months on water and experience the wildlife at first hand. Finally, to arrive in the majestic city of Rome. For those of you who have read Acts 27, you will identify this as a positive spin of Paul's journey to Rome. In chapter 27, we read of a literal storm that Paul experienced in going to Rome. But this storm that he experienced can also be a a symbol, a metaphor of the storms of life that we all at some time experience. As Christians, we're not promised a smooth sail through our voyage of life. But we can learn through Paul's experience anchors that will hold us fast in the storms we experience. This metaphor of anchors and the storms is regularly used by hymn writers as they relate the challenges of life to the sea and its storms. 
Probably one of the most well-known hymns is, Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? When the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? Chorus is, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the sea boulders roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Saviour's love. Another hymn, Christ's sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me, all my sails have all been torn. In the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. I shall never be removed. Another one, the Lord's our rock. In him we hide, a shelter in the time of storm. Secure whatever ill betide, shelter in the time of storm. There are many other hymns and choruses or songs or poems or writings that refer to the storms of life using the sea as a metaphor and as Christ being our anchor. And the question for us I want to ask this morning as we experience the storms of life, are we anchored? Are we anchored to the rock Christ Jesus? Are we trusting the sovereign one who is able to pilot us through the storm? And what we see in chapter 27 is how Paul prevailed through the storm. And we can learn some lessons from how he prevailed as to how we might prevail through the storms of life. So I've just got two points this morning. Anchors in the storm of life and promises fulfilled. Anchors in the storm of life. If we read in chapter 27, verse 13 onwards, it tells us about the storm and the effect on the ship that they experienced on their way to Rome. They started by strengthening the ship as they hit this storm. Then they threw the cargo overboard. Finally, they tossed the ship's tackle, all the things that they needed to, to steer the ship, they, to just lighten the load. Then we read this in verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all our hope, all our hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This was written by Luke. Luke was on the journey with him, Dr. Luke. He wrote that. All our hope of being saved was at last abandoned. But let's turn in Acts 27 now to verse 21. Listen to the words of Paul that followed verse 20. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incur this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of, God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. What a contrast. Luke writing, all hope was abandoned. And then Paul stands up and says this. Paul says this to all of those on the ship, those who were travelling, those who were sailors. Here was this landlubber, 
He first of all reminds them. He does it quite graciously, doesn't he? He reminds them he should have listened to me first. If you'd have listened to me first, we wouldn't have got in this mess. If you'd have, if you'd have gone into Fair Havens, we wouldn't have got into this mess. But he, he kind of done that quite, quite uh, gently, but just wanted to remind them. But then he exhorts them to take heart, be courageous, and don't be afraid. What an incredible irony that it's Paul that should have been telling these experienced sailors to take heart. So let's look at some of the anchors that, were, that Paul tells us in these scriptures, that were in Paul's life that gave him courage in this storm. The first anchor we see, the anchor of God's presence. Paul knew that God was with him. Verse 23, he says, on this occasion, he says, an angel of the Lord appeared to reassure him of God's presence. This was a powerful evidence of God being with him. Yet Paul was already aware of this truth. It was wonderful we had this experience of an angel coming before him. Not many of us have angels coming before us. We have one this week telling you that God is with you. But even though Paul experienced this, he was already aware of this truth. He would be aware of Christ's final words that we read in Matthew 28, verse 20. And behold, I am with you, speaking to the disciples. I am with you to the end of the age. Paul himself writes to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. One of the most glorious truths I find for me. Our lives are hidden with Christ, hidden in Christ. Our destiny is not bound up in, in us, it's bound up in Christ because our lives are hidden with Christ. And so therefore we know that God is always with us. The writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 13, verses 5 to 6, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He goes on to say, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Today, we can, as God's children, with our lives hidden in Christ, can confidently say this morning, the Lord is our helper. We will not fear. What can man do to us? But we may not always feel his presence. He had a particular situation where this angel of the Lord came before him, but we may not always feel his presence, but we can trust in the promises of God that we find in Scripture. R.C. Sproul says, I don't always feel his presence, but God's promises do not depend upon my feelings. They rest upon his integrity. Look to the Bible and not your feelings as the basis of the Christian life. So whether you feel God's presence or not this morning, he is present with you, with us. He's always present with us. Not looking to, the, to our feelings as the basis of you know, whether I feel God with me. I feel his presence. There are times I feel that. I'm sure you do. But there are many times I don't. But I know he's with me. I'm confident, not in my feelings, but of what 
God says in his word, and I can rest, we can rest upon his integrity. Secondly, the anchor of God's ownership. Paul had courage to be at peace in the storm because he knew he belonged to God. Verse 23 we read, we read this, for this very night there stood, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom, to whom I belong and whom I worship. He knew he belonged to God. Wonder, do, are we confident in that this morning? We're confident that we belong to him. Yes, we, we know in his word he's present with us, but Paul knew he belonged to God. Listen to what Jesus said in John 10, 14, 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. This morning we're not on our own. Now sometimes people talk about giving, giving their life away. Our lives are given to King Jesus. We're not our own. One of the most repeated covenant statements in the whole of the word of God in the scriptures is, I will be your God and you will be my people. God says, I will be your God and you you will be my people. It's repeated over and over throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And as Paul says, we are the Lord's, bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus was the price. What a price. What a payment that we've been bought with. Christ has bought us with the cost of his life. And now, as Romans 8 tells us, that nothing, we're bought with a price, we're his, but nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God owns us. God owns us. We belong to him. We have been bought with an incredible price, and our lives are now hidden in Christ. This understanding was another anchor in Paul's life that enabled him to stand tall and be at peace in the storm. And then the anchor of faith. Read 20, verse 24, 25. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar's what has been said to him. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So then Paul says, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as he had been told. Paul knew that ultimately... All things work together for good of those called according to his purpose. And Paul wasn't just kind of hoping, hopeful, that everything would turn out right. Paul didn't know, necessarily know how it was going to turn out. He didn't know all the details. But his trust, his confidence, his faith was in God. Paul was mature in Christ. But God was still teaching him through this experience. And however old and mature we are, God will still be teaching us through the storms of life until we safely reach home.
That's an ongoing thing. That's, that's one thing we can, we can rely upon. That's going to happen. And it's not for us to try and second-guess God as to why, but it is good to ask the question, what is the storm revealing about my faith? What is it telling me? You see, when we hit the storm, we are objective-orientated. In other words, we want to see the end of the storm and finish with a good result. That's how we see it. We're objective-orientated. Whereas God is more process-orientated. God is more interested in the process. He knows what he's going to do anyway. He knows how it's going to turn out. But he's interested more in how we get there than the result. He is concerned about the process. And our response in the time of storm is, is, is perhaps like some of us would say, like, Lord, when you, when you were on the lake and there was a storm, you quelled the storm. That, was, that would be our prayer, wouldn't it? Well, you, you quell it, Lord. You, you, you bring peace in the storm. And sometimes he does that. But so often God wants to teach us something through the storm. So let us ask the question, what is a storm teaching me? R.C. Sproul says, I cannot read God's mind. However, I can read God's word. So we can go to the word, we can go to the scriptures and see what are we learning? How are we responding? Is it revealing a lack of faith or lack of trust in God? Or maybe a wrong expectation? born out of a wrong understanding of Scripture. Sometimes we have an expectation because we've wrongly understood Scripture. Just come to mind now of the Scripture that's so often misunderstood. We often read it, Psalm 121, the Lord will watch over your life. And we think, well, something's happening in my life. It doesn't seem to be watching over me. But the Word is actually the soul. The Lord will watch over your soul both now and forevermore. It's something we can, we can guarantee, we can rely on the promise of God. So we need to ensure that we have a, if we're building on something, we have a right expectation, right understanding of Scripture. Could it be when we go through the times of trials, times of storm, that we're not sure of God's presence? Or you're not perhaps secure that you're the Lord's? Perhaps because of sin that has taken place in your life, you're starting to wonder, am I saved? Am I a Christian? Let me just help you this. If you're worried about it, it probably means you're a Christian. If you're not worried about it, it may be that you're not. And it's often people come to me concerned about their assurance because of, of sin. And we will all continue to sin until... We reach, we reach heaven. We are the Lord's. If we've given our lives to King Jesus, if we're trusting in him, we're believing in him, not just believing about him, but trusting in the person of work of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. He went to the cross for my sin. If we're trusting in his person and his work, then nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Go to those scriptures in Romans 8. It, it, it lists everything. Try and add something to it. You can't. All the list of things that can, can, can happen in your life that 
potentially separate. So with the anchor of God's presence, he is with you. And the anchor of God's ownership, you are God's treasured possession that Christ sacrificed his life for yours. And the anchor of faith, believing and trusting in God's promises, we'll be able to stand firm like Paul in the storms of life. Hebrews 6, verse 19, 20 says, We have, we have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Secondly, I want us to look this morning at the promises fulfilled. If we turn to chapter 28, as I said, we haven't time to go through the two... uh, So chapters this morning, we come to this verse in chapter, in verse 14. Luke writes, and so we come to Rome. There's so much encapsulated in that. When you think of all that's taken place, which we haven't had time to go into this morning, in chapter 27 and and on the island of Malta, all that's taken place. And this little line, and so, it's almost like a relief, and so we come to Rome. Throughout the storm and his time on the island of Malta, God had been sovereignly protecting Paul, not only in the storm, but also the effects of a poisonous snake. And God's providence in protecting Paul was so his providential purposes would be fulfilled. God was just not sovereign over these, what was taking place. It was providential. God was acting to bring about his purposes. And I'm sure that Paul would relate to John Newton when in the song Amazing Grace he says, through many dangers, toils and snares, we have already come. It's grace that's brought him safe thus far and it's grace that will lead him home. I'm sure... When he got to Rome, if he knew that song, he'd be singing it. But John Newton wrote it years after. But as he approached us, the city of Rome, a number of Christians had heard that Paul was going to, to, on his way, and so they travelled some 30, some 40 miles to, to meet him. And this was a great... Paul was so encouraged by this. It was a response of gratitude because he didn't know in going to Rome how he was going to be received. Paul then, arriving in Rome, was allowed to stay in a home by himself, but with soldiers guarding him. He then organised two initial meetings, one with the Jewish leaders, as he wanted to testify to the Jewish leaders first in Rome. Then he had another meeting, not only with, with leaders, but the distinguished people of the city. And following that, as verse 30 tells us, he spent... Two whole years, at his own expense, at his own expense, chained to a guard, mind you, but at his own expense, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it say? If you look at verse 30, 31 actually, with all boldness and without hindrance. With all boldness and without hindrance. Well, he was chained. He was under house arrest, but it didn't stop him. It didn't stop him. Paul was to wait two more years before his trial. 
And John Stott says, what then is the major lesson we are, intent, we are intended to learn from Acts 27, 28? It concerns the providence of God who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. We read in Acts 9, verse 15, that God had providentially planned that Paul would carry his name before kings. In Acts 23, verse 11, that he would testify about Christ in Rome. And in Acts 27, verse 24, that you must stand before Caesar. These were significant promises that have been given over Paul's life. And now we see, in God's sovereignty, Paul has now reached Rome safe and sound. But he arrived not as a free Roman citizen, but as chained to a guard prisoner. Although Paul would believe and trust in God's word, and his sovereignty that he would testify in Rome, he was not expecting that testimony and him being in Rome to be given as a prisoner in his own house. But in God's providence, in going as a prisoner, he was able to expand his witness over the, those two years in custody in the city. Chapter 25, we read of Paul's appeal to be tried before Caesar. And I'm sure in making this appeal, he had not envisioned this torturous journey he would experience in going to Rome and then to be chained under house arrest. And so often we find our journey in life going through many dangers, toils and snares, and we may think that the purposes and plans God has for us have been thwarted. But ultimately, as Philippians tells us, that God will work for the good of those called according to his purpose. And the ultimate purpose for our lives will be fulfilled. We don't know what our ultimate purpose is. We kind of judge it ourselves. We're not judging it in the courts of heaven. But in the courts of heaven, our ultimate purpose for life is set and will be fulfilled so we can take courage in the storms of life. You know, in times of trouble and distress, we, we confess that we trust God, are trusting in God. But I've got a question to ask us. Are we trusting in God to bring about an answer that we want in a way that satisfies us? Or are we trusting God in God, whatever the outcome? Our trust needs to recognise that he is sovereign. And he knows what is good for us. I can't remember the exact words, but it's just come to mind. I think Spurgeon says, if we, if we were able to transport ourselves into heaven, or were able to look at our circumstances, however difficult they would be, and understand it from heaven's point of view, we would say, oh, please don't change it. But we see it from an earthly point of view. He did not think he would be under house arrest for two years. But as a result, as a result of him being under house arrest, he was able to preach the gospel unhindered and to write four letters that today we are so blessed and encouraged by. He wrote to the Ephesians. He wrote to the Philippians. He wrote to the Colossians. He wrote to Philemon. 
letters that we now read and gain great encouragement from in our life. That came about because he was put in prison. Well, he was under house arrest. He hadn't been under house arrest. Well, we don't know. God is sovereign, we don't know how. But humanly speaking, it all came because he was under house arrest. And in Philippians 1 verse 12, we get, I love this, we get Paul's eternal perspective of his imprisonment. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, talking about this arrest now, and to, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having been confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. <laughs> he could see that. He could see the effect of his imprisonment, what, what really was going on. He saw it in an eternal perspective. He saw it in a, in a broader way. It's for Christ. And because it had brought confidence in brothers, they were able to share the gospel. They were able to speak the word without fear. He said, this has served. Being in prison has served, really served to advance the gospel. It's amazing. <laughs> we wouldn't think that They'll keep me out of prison so that I can share the gospel. <clears throat> I'm not suggesting we should all start wanting to go to prison to share with prisoners. But, but we need to understand God's purposes. God's ways are not our ways. How often do we say that? His ways are not our ways. And then we expect him to do things like we think. So not only seeing his, his, his imprisonment as an opportunity to write these wonderful letters that we can read today that powerfully affect our lives, he was able to testify to many in the city, people kind of queuing up to come and hear Paul. And as I said just now, we read in verse 31, he proclaimed the gospel with, with boldness and without hindrance. And this, this struck me. Paul had experienced personal hindrance, but the spread of the gospel was not hindered. How many times when we share the gospel, we're aware of the hindrances? First of all, in us. You know, if only somebody better than me was sharing this gospel, this person might get saved. If only I could share it better. We don't seem to have answers to the questions that they raise. The circumstances in which we're sharing is, is not the best. Sitting on a train or a coach or bus or an airplane or whatever, they think, well, I haven't really got time to open up the scriptures and get the Bible out and pray or whatever. We wish we could share, how many of us wish we could share the gospel in a more compelling, captivating way? We go through courses, don't we? How to, how to share the gospel. You know, let, let, let's, let's look at the ways we can learn. And that's good. But we need to recognise that personal hindrances do not hinder the word of God itself. Whatever the hindrances, God's word is not hindered. You may think you could invite a friend here on a Sunday morning and 
you kind of wonder how they would, how it would all work out, how it would fit in, how, how things would go, because they're not Christians and they don't necessarily understand. But the word of God will go out. And for those who have been called and chosen, they will receive the word of God because the gospel is not hindered. Our task is to make Christ and his gospel known. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that brings about revelation and brings about God's work of grace in somebody's life. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, The word is not hindered. We are its messengers. We will take the gospel to the ends of the earth, beginning with our Jerusalem, as we've been instructed to do. If we will, God will bless it to the praise of the glory of his great grace. Paul probably thought that when he got to Rome, he would be able to freely speak to the vast crowds in the forum. But although he was confined to a single house, chained to a soldier, he remained undaunted. God in his providence was using his imprisonment to reach both the Jewish leaders and the high and mighty in Rome. It will not be till a few years later that the final prophecy, if you like, over Paul was fulfilled when he stood before Caesar. But we can see from these two chapters that Paul found peace in the storm by knowing God was with him, that he was God's possession, and by his faith and trust in God. And that faith was a gift given by God to him. Paul came to see the promises of God to him were being fulfilled. God is a faithful God. We so often sing it, great is thy faithfulness. God is a faithful God. And we can know and experience what Paul knew and experienced. That peace, that peace that passes all understanding in the trial, the trials of life, anchoring ourselves in Christ. The Gospel Transformation Bible in conclusion says this, the book ends, this is the book of Acts, with Paul preaching the kingdom of God with boldness and without hindrance. This is a fitting summary and conclusion to the book. The gospel of Jesus Christ goes from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Not without trouble, but without hindrance. God's purposes will have their way. The book of Acts tells us the story of Jesus building his church by his grace. Gives us confidence that he will continue to build it until he returns. Acts is a story of Christ building his church. And we continue to build his church until he returns and takes us home. The gospel being preached in Acts 28 is the same gospel that Peter preached in Acts 2. And can I say, our commission in Acts 29 is to continue to preach the same old story. Just in case you're not sure, there's no Acts 29. We're Acts 29. We carry on preaching, just, just in case you start looking for Acts 29. It's our role. We continue this ministry. We have a privilege. We are so blessed, aren't we? We're so blessed. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you this morning that you have made yourself known to us. Thank you, Lord, that we can know this morning that we're children of the, of the living God. And we've been adopted into your family. Our lives are secure in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you help us and sustain us through the storms of life. Through many dangers, tolls and snares, we have already come. It's grace that's brought us safe thus far, and it is grace that will lead us home. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of faith that enables us to trust you in all circumstances. Thank you this morning that all promises of Scripture are yes and amen in Christ. And this morning that we can be confident that you will fulfil all your promises to us. Well, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you're a high priest who sympathises with our weaknesses so that even when we struggle to be anchored in Christ, he will hold us fast. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this book of Acts that we've gone through. Thank you for understanding the history of the book, not, the, not its normative, as it were, for us, but the history and the lessons that we can learn from it. So, Father, thank you this morning that we're yours. Our lives are hidden in Christ. Whatever comes our way, you will hold us fast as we hold on to you, as we strengthen our faith in you with these anchors. Amen.